Now you'll remember that in the first 10 verses of chapter 1 of 1 Kings, we read of how Adonijah, David's son, took advantage of David's age and of his infirmity by setting himself up as king. And he got some help from powerful people in David's administration to do it. Now, it's easy to lose count of the number of times one of David's sons has attempted to take his throne. It stands in stark contrast to the reign of Saul, whose own son, Jonathan, gladly ceded any perceived right he might have had to the throne to David. And David, even though he had been anointed king, refused to do anything that might come close to appearing like he was trying to take the throne from Saul. Even after Saul had chased him for years trying to kill him, when David had the chance, he refused to kill Saul, which would have put him on the throne. But David's sons, at least some of them, seemed to have few, if any, scruples about trying to wrest power from their father. And Adonijah is the latest and last to make the attempt. But Solomon, even though he is the rightful heir to the throne, according to the promise that God made to David in 1 Chronicles 22, had no interest in plots or intrigue in order to put himself on the throne more quickly. And Solomon, in our passage, is completely passive. When decisive action becomes necessary in order to prevent Adonijah from stealing the throne from Solomon, he doesn't do anything in the matter. The prophet Nathan and Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, intervene on his behalf. In giving this description of the way that Solomon rose to power in Israel, we are given a sketchbook drawing of the way in which God orchestrated the events that resulted in the ushering in of his kingdom through the incarnation of his son. I am not an artist. I've never presumed to be an artist. Some of you are artists. Some of you know more about art than I do, but... At the very least, I know that that many artists, prior to actually painting the masterpiece, they would do a sketch, a study of a subject, often in charcoal or graphite, something uh, temporary, something that uh, that they could change or paint over. Now, that's not to say that what the Lord is doing here is the equivalent of that. God is not trying to perfect the process by using Solomon as a, a, a study in that sense. But God is showing us a pattern, the pattern in the way that he works. And we see in the life of Solomon, the way that he rose to power, a picture, a sketch, a study of the way that the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, the way that he would ascend to the throne. Solomon, like his father David, was an imperfect man and an imperfect king. But like David, Solomon served as a type of the Christ that was to come. God did not permit David to build the temple because of the blood that he had shed over the course of his life. But Solomon, at least up to this point in his life, was a man of peace. His name means peaceful. Being t- taken from the Hebrew for the uh, Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And as 1 Chronicles 22 verses 9 and 10 say, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. So Solomon, the son of David, served to foreshadow the coming of Jesus, the son of David and son of God. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to keep this thought in front of you, Jesus Christ brings true peace between God and man because he is the prince of peace 
who sits on the throne. Again, Jesus Christ brings true peace between God and man because he is the prince of peace who sits on the throne. The sermon has three parts. The first is giver of good advice. The second, reminder of the oath. And the third, player for peace. Again, giver of good advice, that's the first point of the sermon. The second, reminder of the oath. And the third, player for peace. So let's look at the first section of the sermon today, giver of good advice. In the background of our passage this morning is the fact that Adonijah is in the midst of carrying out a coup. He is actively, at the moment the events of our passage are taking place, seizing power. And there's a lot going on, but we've left that, the scene of that action to, uh, to quickly go to what's taking place with Nathan, Bathsheba, King David. And so this, the events in, in our passage this morning, they happened very quickly in real time. There wasn't a moment to lose. Nathan had learned of Adonijah's feast. He understood the implications. He heard about the lists of who were invited, those who weren't invited. It's clear Adonijah is setting himself up to be the next king of Israel. And since all of Adonijah's other brothers were invited while Solomon was not, it betrayed the fact that Adonijah knew that Solomon was the heir to the throne. In verse 11, Nathan went to Bathsheba, who was unaware, it seems, of Adonijah's plot, and he tells her what she needs to do. Nathan's name literally means he has given. It's related to the Hebrew word for gift, and he definitely gives Bathsheba a gift here. In verse 12, he tells her that he's going to give her advice so that she might save Solomon's and her own lives. Nathan understands that they're truly in peril. He tells her in verse 13 to go to the king at once and say, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Although it isn't recorded in Scripture, David had related to Bathsheba what God had told him in 1 Chronicles 22. And he promised her with an oath that he would carry it out. He would carry out God's command. Now, Adonijah was using the principle of primogeniture to make his stand in seizing the throne. He thought that because he was the oldest living son of David, that he had the right to be king. But he must have felt that he was being treated unfairly because Solomon had been chosen over him. But that is because no principle of primogeniture had been established in Israel. Jonathan knew that he wasn't going to be king, even though he was Saul's firstborn son. He fully endorsed David to follow his father on the throne. Apparently, Adonijah had been looking at how the surrounding nations did things, how they ran uh, the hierarchy of the kingdom. He liked what he saw as it related to the succession of kings, but God wasn't bound by this principle. He had made an apparently unexpected choice in who would succeed David as king, and as a result, many did not recognize that Solomon was the heir to the throne. Once Bathsheba was talking with David, Nathan told her that he would then enter David's room. He would confirm everything that she had told David. And as Dale Davis points out, that would fulfill the requirement of Numbers 35, 30 and other places that there needed to be at at least two witnesses to an event. Now keep in mind, we haven't been introduced to Solomon at this point. He's been referred to, but he hasn't been on screen so far. But imagine being in his place on this day. You start your day like any other, going about your routine. Of course, their days started in the evenings rather than in the mornings like ours do. He starts out his day. Everything's normal. 
Before the day is over, he is anointed and seated on the throne as the king. And it all happened so quickly because his half-brother decided that he was going to take matters into his own hands. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, reminder of the oath. Beginning in verse 15, Nathan's plan is put into action. We read, that, we read there that Bathsheba goes in to see David in his chamber. And David, frail and infirmed, is being cared for by Abishag. It's hard to know if this was awkward for them. But this part of the story is awkward for us if we remember the backstory of David and Bathsheba and then consider that a woman who is apparently David's newest wife is present in the room. But David still has, at least seems to have a level of, of closeness with Bathsheba or she with him that she can enter into his chamber, even in his infirmed state, to speak to him. She seems to understand that she has a privileged position among David's many wives, and she acts with boldness because of it, probably because of the oath that he made to her, that her son Solomon, their son, would be the next king. And after bowing and giving honor to the king, she says, beginning in verse 17, My Lord, you swore to your servant by Yahweh your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now Bathsheba, whose name literally means daughter of the oath, reminds David of the oath he took when he promised her that Solomon would be his heir to the throne. She continues in verses 18 and 19, And behold, now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited now this is the crucial piece of information that David needs to know. There's no reason to doubt that David remembers the oath that he made to Bathsheba regarding Solomon, though it was important for her to invoke it, to remind him of this oath. But he doesn't know what Adonijah is up to. And she has to convince him that Adonijah's actions demonstrate that he is setting himself up as king right then. Though David told Bathsheba of his plans for Solomon, apparently he has told no one else and this has left Solomon and Bathsheba in desperate straits, and that desperation is evident in how Bathsheba addresses David. We saw how deferential she was to David when she first entered the chamber. She bowed and she paid homage to him, but she quickly became assertive with him. She changed the question that Nathan directed her to ask, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to my servant? To a statement, My lord, you swore to your servant by Yahweh your God, saying... She is provoking David, but most likely she's provoking him in an attempt to get him one last time to act decisively so that she and Solomon will survive Adonijah's attempted coup. And after laying out her evidence that Adonijah is seizing power, she tells David in verses 20 and 21, And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. As provocative as Bathsheba is, in, is being in speaking so boldly to David, more than that, she is clinging to that oath that he made. She is calling on him to keep his promise. In this way, Bathsheba serves as a model for us. The promise that David made was precious to her because it meant safety for her son and for her. And part of her reason for invoking David's oath may, may have been her uncertainty about whether or not he would keep it. 
But even so, we also should remind ourselves of the promises, the oaths that God has made to us. When you are doubting, when you are uncertain about your standing before the Lord, when you are feeling guilty or convicted of sin, when you just don't know how you stand before the face of the Lord, do you look to yourself? Do you look to your own merits? Do you look to all of those things that you have done that have earned you this right to be in the presence of the Lord? You better not. (laughs) It won't get you very far. You go to the promises of God. You go to His Word and what He has told you He will do for you. You remind yourself, you remind the Lord in prayer of the oath that He took when He made that covenant with you. You cling to it just the same way Bathsheba clung to this oath that David made to her. You cling to it. God's oath, His promise, will get you through those perilous times. Not your own strength, not your own good deeds, not a recitation of the merits that you have done to earn your salvation. Those will get you nowhere. We don't need to worry about God keeping his promises. God is ever faithful to his word but we remind ourselves so that we don't begin to falter and doubt. And we ought not to accuse God. We ought not to say, God, you aren't keeping your promises, but we can certainly be assertive as we state his promises because we know that he will keep them for us. And that brings us to the third and the final section of our sermon this morning, player for peace. In the last six verses, Nathan enters the scene once again. He has assigned to himself a part to play, and he plays it to perfection. He told Bathsheba that while she was still speaking with David, he would would come in and he would confirm, he would expand upon what she had said. And in verse 22, he does exactly that. Nathan entered the room, and verse 23 says that he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And in verse 24, he begins to play his carefully crafted part. And I put it this way, Not because he's some sort of play actor. I put it this way because it's reminiscent of the role that he played when he confronted David about his sins against Uriah and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 12. There, Nathan told David a fictional story about a wealthy man with vast possessions who stole a poor man's little ewe lamb, his only lamb, which this poor man had raised since it was a baby, and which was like a daughter to this poor man. And the rich man stole the lamb and he slaughtered it for a feast. And of course, you remember this account, but it's good to be reminded of it. And David, you remember, he was incensed by the actions of this rich man. He pronounced a death sentence on this rich man. He was going to send out his men and capture this man and put him to death for what he had done. And that is when Nathan told David that he was the man. It was a fictional story intended to bring David to the point of repentance and sorrow for his sins. And what Nathan tells David in our story, it isn't completely fictional. But the way that Nathan tells it is intended to make David think that Nathan believes he's responsible for Adonijah setting himself up as king. And so he says to David in verse 24, My lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne? And he doesn't give David a chance to respond. He keeps speaking, speaking in verse 25. For he has gone down this day in a sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance. 
and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. And then Nathan tells David who was not invited in verse 26, Solomon being the chief among them. And he finishes by asking David in verse 27, Has this thing been brought about by my lord, the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of the lord, my, my lord, the king after him? Now, Nathan, you'll see, he closely echoes Bathsheba's statement to David in verse 20 when she said that the eyes of all Israel were on David, wanting for, waiting for him to tell them who would sit on the throne after his death. Nathan has corroborated Bathsheba's account. And he's also given David a subtle but swift kick to the seat of the pants, which, as we'll see, serves, along with Bathsheba's assertiveness, to motivate David into action. All of this, and more, so that the rightful heir to the throne will be seated upon it, and an era of peace will be ushered in in Israel. This is what David needs. Now, some might look at this and think it's manipulative, but David, David is near death. David is not going to live much longer, but he must, he has to take action. If he dies while Adonijah is doing what he's doing, before Solomon is pronounced as king, then Adonijah will be king. And David will have failed to keep his oath. He will have failed to keep the command that the Lord gave him. Peace is what God promised David would come when his heir reigned upon the throne. And God kept his promise. When Solomon was king, there was a period of peace. It wasn't absolute. It wasn't permanent. But compared to David's reign, Solomon's was marked by peace. And that is because the peace that came with Solomon served to point forward to the ultimate peace that would come when the Son of God became man. Jesus Christ has made peace between us and God because he, he is the God who became one of us. He is the one, ultimately, of whom God spoke when he promised that David's son would sit on the throne and bring peace. There was a great enmity between God and us because of our sin, because of your sin, my sin. We hated each other. We hated God. He hated us. But Jesus, through his perfect obedience throughout his life and on the cross, has reconciled to God everyone who believes in him. We are no longer at war. And just as God worked it out for Solomon to become king, even though that didn't line up with the expectations of many in his day, so also he orchestrated all of the events throughout history so that in the fullness of time, his only begotten son would come and inaugurate the kingdom of peace. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in Him as the Son of God and your Savior, you are at war with Almighty God and you will lose. It is a battle that you cannot win. You'll lose. And at the end, when He comes in full glory to judge the heavens and the earth, to judge all of the inhabitants of the earth, when he comes then and you fully realize that you have lost, it's too late. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ now, you will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
But if you do believe, if you trust that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who in the fullness of time became a man, who took on a human nature, who added to His divine nature human flesh and a human soul, if you believe that He lived a perfect life for you and that He died a perfect death for you and that He was raised for your justification so that you could be declared righteous in the sight of His Father, if you believe these things, and believe it or not, it's very simple what you must believe, then you have no need to fear that day of judgment because you are at peace. And that is a peace that will never be revoked. It is an armistice that will never be undone. Because Christ Jesus has won the victory. He's defeated your sin nature. And He's defeated the enemy of your soul. He has rescued from hell all of those who would have perished in it had they died in their sins. But He's done this for you. And He's done this for me. He's done this for everyone whom He has called according to His good and mighty purposes. All that's required for you to be at peace with God is to believe in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.